Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to dive in pretty quickly here, but I want to say two things. First of all, contrary to what Darren said earlier, I feel like every time I pray up here, people say amen at the end. So that's a pretty healthy amount of amens that I get, Darren. So. Because <laughs> I'm ending. Thanks. Uh, and also, too, you might not have noticed because of the lights, but someone uh, let go of a red helium balloon in here uh, last night. So that's some father's opportunity to be a real hero to their kids this morning. So uh, issued that challenge. I'd like to see some dad uh, get that. Um, we're going to dive right in. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we're doing this uh, short series called Plain and Simple, where we're just taking some kind of maybe common, well-known, maybe straightforward passages of the Bible and trying to unpack a little bit about what they mean for us in 2018 living in Western Canada. And like I said, I want to dive right in, but I kind of actually want to um, go back a little bit to where we were at last week. Um, Last week, we were talking about uh, the law in the Old Testament, and the Hebrew word is Torah, and we find this uh, mostly prescribed in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then um, a lot of the rest of the Old Testament. Did I say New Testament? I said Old Testament, right? Okay, I don't know. Anyways, the Old Testament, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, we see the law, the Torah, God's given all these laws, um, and we see uh, a lot of the rest of the Old Testament is uh, kind of the expression of those laws amongst God's people, the Israelites, where they're living them out, or if you've read the narratives, they're not living them out, and kind of, uh, you know, how that's going. And last week, we arrived in uh, Exodus 20, we're reading uh, through the Decalogue, or what we commonly, a lot of times nowadays, call the Ten Commandments, which is a part of God's law. And one thing I was talking about last week is how, you know, God's law is not just kind of arbitrary rules that he has to kind of keep people in check, but what his law is, is it's something he gives to the people in the Old Testament, to the Israelites, uh, that are uh, an opportunity, some kind of standards by which they can uh, operate in a healthy and right relationship with God, their loving Father who created them. Um, and it, you know, as we were in the Decalogue last week, or the Ten Commandments, we talked about how there were laws about how uh, people would relate to God directly, and how in the context of that relationship, how they could relate with each other. Now, these laws or rules weren't only that, but they were also something that God had given to the Israelites uh, so that the Israelites could be God's image bearers to the nations around them. They could represent God's character by the ways that they lived according to these laws to the nations around them, the nations that didn't know God or have his laws. And now when we talk about God's character, it's, it's challenging because I think a lot of times we just resort to talking about how loving God is. And and I think that's good in a way because God is so loving. But there are a lot of layers to God's character. I mean, you read the narratives, and I mean, God punishes people. He, you know, there's there's a wrathful side. Um, But I do believe that all of that comes out of uh, this perfect love manifested through a perfect God who cares about us so much and offers us mercy and compassion and grace. So this morning, I am just going to be talking about God's love, but I kind of want to acknowledge that maybe it's a little bit of a bigger 
question or a bigger statement to talk about God's character in its kind of many expressions and layers. But I want to talk this morning about God's law and how it represents his love and how his love is something that can manifest through us. In the same way when we read the law in the Old Testament, God's law was not only just rules, but it was a way for people to not only experience God's love, but to live it out to those around them. And the Torah, the the Old Testament law, really represents God's love in a cool way. And last week I'd read this verse, I'll read it again, this passage, uh, and these are the words of Jesus, and this really sums it up really well. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. If, if Jesus is saying all of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments, then I think we sit up and listen and say, this is pretty important. I referenced it last week, but in our strategic points here, think in and think out actually are based on this exact passage here. When we say engage personally with God, we're saying love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of who you are. We talk about thinking out, we just tell people to engage with the world around them. What we're saying is, you know, uh, love others as you would love yourself. Now, when we say love others as you love yourself, or when people say do unto others, you know, or the golden rule, that type of stuff, that sounds really good. It rolls off the tongue kind of easily. You know, we're happy if kids say that. We hear people say it. it makes us kind of feel good and warm and fuzzy. But it's actually really hard. You know, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's pretty hard to be that selfless. To actually love someone, not, not just love someone, but love someone as you love yourself. To have like the exact same desire for contentment and provision and, and fulfillment and happiness that you have for yourself. To actually have that exact same level of desire for someone else. Man, like, that's hard. I struggle. I mean, I, I, I'm just not there, you know? That's a big call. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, this idea of loving loving others as yourself. And it's difficult and and uncomfortable, but hopefully we can dig into that a little bit this morning. We're going to be uh, looking in the first chapter of James this morning. If you've never read James, it's an awesome book in the New Testament that's full of so much wisdom, and it's it's, uh, a a good read. It's also a painful read because it's so convicting and challenging. But at the end of the first chapter in verse 27, which is the verse we're going to be talking about this morning, James writes, and he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I'll read that one more time. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, I think if I was to get up this morning, I was going to say, hey, guys, I'm going to be preaching about taking care of orphans and widows in their distress, and I'm also going to be preaching about keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. You would think, Ryan, you have two different sermon topics. You've failed to pick one thing to talk about this morning. And it's kind of an interesting verse, because when you really read it, you're like, man, he's kind of like talking about two kind of different things. Now, I actually believe that if you read the whole of the biblical text, you'll see that these two things are very closely related, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping from being polluted by the world. In fact, I think that being polluted by the world and uh, caring for orphans and widows in their distress are, are two factors that are in direct opposition of each other. And here's what I mean. I'll unpack that for you a little bit. When Jesus calls his followers, when we read about what Jesus calls his followers to, he calls them in a really countercultural way. He shows up, and if you read the narrative of him calling his uh, disciples in in the Gospels, he shows up, and like a lot of times, like mid-shift, like they're at work, you know, it's not like they've just graduated or quit their job, or they're kind of like in like a, you know, a hiatus in life or something. He shows up like mid-shift. He's like, hey, 
just drop your nets, just quit on the spot, you know, no two weeks notice. Come follow me. He's not like offering them money or a job or stability or security or anything. They just, just follow me. And what he's really saying is he's saying, you know, this is, uh, he's calling people from the path that they're following to a completely different path. He's not saying, hey, keep following your life's path and, and add in some Jesus on the side. You know, it's not like, you know, add some Jesus seasoning on top of the main courses. He's saying, get rid of that and follow this. It's an intense call. It's really countercultural and it's really radical. He calls people out of the patterns that the world calls us to and calls us to something new and different. We see this expressed well a few chapters later in James, James 4.4. James writes, he says, you adulterous people, and just to clarify, he's not talking to a bunch of people who are sleeping around on their spouses. He's talking about their adultery, their unfaithfulness in their relationship with God. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, which is friction or tension or kind of uh, animosity against God. Therefore, Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What James is saying is that the world has a lot of things to offer you. And if you choose to desire those things and follow those things, then you might find a type of cheap satisfaction that you think is good, but you're going to find yourself in opposition to what God's called you to. This might remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, where he says, you can't serve two masters. Jesus says, if you try to serve two masters, you're going to love one and hate the other, or vice versa. And when Jesus is talking here, he's talking about possessions. He's talking about money. He says you can't, you can't pursue money. You can't pursue comfort, luxury, being rich. And really, you can't pursue your own desires and follow Jesus at the same time. These two aren't compatible. And that's hard to hear. And really, what James is talking about when he talks about friendship with the world is he's talking about what I believe really boils down to selfishness, our own selfish nature, pursuing what we want, pursuing what's comfortable and what's good for us and what we desire, going our own way rather than trusting the God who created the universe. And I, see, I think we see this expressed really well in the first instance of sin that we can find in the biblical text. So we're going to actually read through that. In Genesis 2, God, he's created everything. He's created the world. He started talking, and the world started to exist and all that. And all of a sudden, you know, he's got this man named Adam, and he comes and talks to Adam, and this is what happens. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He's like, here's all this stuff. This is great. I've hooked you up. I made you. Just don't eat from this tree. And most of you know what happens in the story. We continue on in Genesis 3. It says, now the serpent, and for those of you who don't know the text, that's Satan, or else some people believe just how the author of this text has represented Satan. But either way, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then comes back the serpent, you will not certainly die. So what he's saying here is he's saying, I know that God created everything and knows everything and is the all-knowing all creator of the universe. But trust me, he's got this part wrong. And the serpent continues. He says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Really what happens in this text is Adam and Eve take their eyes off of God, and they focus their gaze on themselves. They see that the fruit looks yummy. It might offer wisdom that they think that they want. They know what they think they want, and they trust it more than God, and they selfishly look at themselves. They're self-focused. And that's what's going on in James 1.27, is to be polluted by the world, is to be drawn by the enticements and what the world has to offer. The fruit might look good, and the world offers you that, and the world says, focus on yourself and do what's best for you. And Jesus says, no, trust me and follow me. And part of that, when you embrace the character of who God is and when you follow him, you will take care of orphans and widows in their distress. When you follow Jesus, when you embrace God's character, you realize it's just not about me. And you realize that the gospel is very antithetical to your selfishness. I want to look at three ideas from James 1.27 this morning. If you're using the bulletin notes or the app notes where there's some blanks, you can fill in there if you want to follow along. But we'll read it one more time. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look, to, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the first idea I want to look at is this idea of pure and faultless religion. James is talking about pure and faultless religion. So this is, this is kind of the, the good part of the text. He's saying this is what you want to accomplish. You want to accomplish pure and faultless religion. You want to have a relationship with Jesus that is pure and faultless. See, when Jesus called his disciples and he said, follow me, come follow me, it's an intense statement because he's showing up and saying, follow me. I mean, for us to go up to someone and be like, hey, follow me, you know, for your life, just follow me, would be like awkward and seem kind of intense just for what the words are. But I think there's another layer that makes it even more intense than just what the words are themselves. And I think that's who's saying the words. I think that's what really intensifies the statement. And here's what I mean. If someone comes up to you tomorrow and says, follow me, and you know that maybe they just, they work a fairly normal job, like, you know, maybe they work in retail or they just have an office job that's kind of, you know, uneventful. Maybe they, you know, they're a teacher. It's something that's kind of just like a, maybe a standard job. You'd say, well, I think I could do that. I could show up, it'd be safe, it'd be normal and stuff. But if someone comes up to you and says, follow me, and you know that their job is that they're one of those crazy people who tightrope walks across Niagara Falls for a living, like while juggling chainsaws or something, it's a different statement. That's a game changer. You're thinking, man, no, like at least put me in the wheelbarrow and push me across or something like that, you know? Or someone's like, hey, I'm in the, I'm in the army and I'm fighting front lines battles. Bullets flying everywhere. Follow me. It's an intense statement. But even more intense than that, is when Jesus says, follow me, because of who he is. See, it's who says, follow me, that makes that statement what it is. When Jesus says, follow me, that's an intense statement. Because when Jesus goes up to his disciples and says, follow me, where's he headed? Jesus is headed to one place, and that's the cross. A brutal death, persecution on the cross. And on that journey, he says, come follow me. I mean, that is intense. The junior high retreat, we had this speaker named Jay, who's a friend of Darren's, and uh, he uh, used this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I love it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is an inspiring man. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. 
Now, if you're new to church this morning, it's your first time at church, I just want to let you know that we're not doing sacrifices at the end of the service or anything like that. When Jesus calls a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. See, James 1.27 says that we should care for orphans and widows in their distress. We should take care of those who are in need. We should position ourselves to do that. That's exactly what Jesus did. Because as much as orphans and widows or uh, people who are poor have physical needs, we had a spiritual need that made us more needy than any of those people ever could be. And Jesus stepped right into danger, right into the line of fire, and met that need. And he calls us to follow him. Jesus' life was literally, his whole life on earth was literally to come and die. So he says, follow me. He's bidding you come and die. I'm here to tell you that Christianity, if you make it the core of your life, will cost you in every single area of your life. And if it doesn't, and this is a strong statement, then I will tell you that I don't think that you've let Jesus touch that area of your life yet. But Jesus says, come and die. Surrender it all at my feet. He wants all of who you are. He wants you to love him with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. See, this is the contrast in James 1.27. You can be absorbed by what the world offers. The world might offer enticing things. The world will tell you to focus on yourself. But Jesus says, man, just take care of people who are in need. Take your eyes off yourself. Adam and Eve, they took their eyes off God and they put them, their eyes on themselves and it cost them big time. Jesus calls us to come and die and it is sacrificial and it is tough to live Christianity out in that way, but it is the most rewarding, the most fulfilling choice you could ever make. The second idea that we pull out of James 1.27 is this idea of him talking about orphans and widows in their distress. Now, this text reads a little bit differently than it would uh, to us now than it would to people when this was written uh, because maybe some of the socioeconomic climate has changed and how things work with orphans and widows. And nowadays, a lot of our need is maybe not kind of your uh, specific kind of life situation, but a lot of times more geographical. Um, and uh, needs exist everywhere, but for sure there are a lot of parts of the world that have greater needs in, in some physical ways. I mean, over 3 billion people in the world, which is almost half the world's population, lives on less than $2.50 a day. But that's not what the people who make these statistics con consider to be extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is less than $1.25 a day, and that's about 1.3 billion people in the world. I mean, that's, like, that's almost 20% of our world's population. It's crazy. 800 million people, so over 10% of our world's population don't have enough food. They're, they're malnourished, they're starving. Over 20,000 kids under the age of five die every day, every single day. And most of those deaths are totally preventable. And preventable by who? By people who have, us. We're rich. We're really rich people. We don't like to think that or call ourselves that, but we really are. I think sometimes when we talk about poverty, it's easy to, you know, you, you, you get focused on one thing. You think about the global poverty and it's overwhelming, all these numbers, 800 million, 3 billion, 20,000. Or, or sometimes we just are like, well, no, it's just we've got to focus local rather than global. So we think about these things. And my encouragement when we think about who the orphans and widows in your life are, to understand that God has given you a sphere. God's positioned you somewhere to have certain orphans and widows. And by that, I mean people who are in need, people who need you to be the answer to their needs and their prayers. God has placed you somewhere to be aware of what you can do to care for his children that he cares about so much. And I think our tendency is sometimes to think too big or too small. 
We're like, oh man, 800 million, 20,000, all these big numbers, and we get overwhelmed and we feel paralyzed because we can't take care of it all. But then sometimes I think we think too small. We're like, well, you know, I helped out my one neighbor, I sponsored this one kid, or I did this thing, so check, I'm good for the year. And I think both perspectives probably aren't that helpful. My encouragement would be to, do, to take an assessment. Say, God, what have you given me that I can invest into, whether it's global or local or national or whatever? Who can I help? Who are my orphans and widows? And start doing some of that. And then eventually do some more and do some more and keep adding. I think that that's a good perspective. In North America, we're so rich. Uh, like I said, we don't like to call ourselves that, but man, we are... We're loaded compared to the rest of the world. One of the biggest problems with our giving is that we're just so irresponsible with what we have. We're not good at surrendering it to Jesus, and we're not even good at managing it ourselves. As a quick aside, I think one of the big challenges facing us in North America is that we're so rich, but we're so strapped by debt and by bad financial decisions and letting our money just run a course on its own. And I want to tell you today, if you're struggling with that this morning, no judgment or anything, but talk to someone. Find someone you trust who's maybe good at that kind of stuff, and say, hey, listen, I need to get this under control. I want to be able to actually have the opportunity to come and die and to live for Jesus and honor him in this way. Um, Talisi this morning mentioned something to me, and this isn't in my notes or anything, but she uh, is interesting because she said that... Um, on Facebook today, one of those memories popped up that reminds you of your past or whatever, which kind of as you get older gets more and more painful, right? But um, she said that six years ago today, she posted this statement, and I don't know it word for word or whatever, but she had said um, something to the effect of, I believe that one day church historians will look back on the church of our day and not be able to believe that we lived in such luxury in the midst of such a poor and struggling world. Yeah, that's true. One day people are going to look back at what we did. Church historians will study what we did or didn't do. And they'll have an opinion on who we were as a church. Who are your orphans and widows? What more can you do? How can you be faithful with what God's given you? The last idea I want to pull out of this passage is this idea of being polluted by the world. Like I said, we're polluted by the world when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we focus on ourselves. The gospel calls us to surrender, to come and die, to take up our cross and daily follow Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we focus on ourselves and we're self-focused and we're self-centered and we're selfish, we lose that. Jesus says, follow me, not follow yourself. And we, can see, we see concern for those in need all throughout the Bible. This isn't just a Jesus and a New Testament thing, but even in Torah law, this shows up. One of the laws God gave uh, the Israelites, in fact, Le uh, Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, uh, chapter 19, verses 9 to 10. God says, when you reap the harvest of, notice this word, your land, do not reap to the very edges of, again, your field, or gather gleanings of, again, your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. You can also find this in Leviticus 23. It's interesting. God's not saying, it's not your field. He's saying, this is your field. This is your stuff. This is your food. Like, you're entitled to it. But not everything that you have should be yours. There are poor and needy people. And this wasn't, I think sometimes we read the Bible and we think of it as suggestions. The way that ancient Israelites would have read this, this was law. God is saying, don't be selfish with what you have. You have land, great. Let other people who are starving eat as well. 
This is one of the problems in the church is, is that we just believe that what we have is ours and we treat it like it's only ours. When we give, we give out of our excess. We don't actually sacrifice. It doesn't actually hurt that much when we give a lot of the time. Jesus bids a man, come and die. One of the problems is when we as Christians, who are so rich and have so much, choose to not come and die in this area, people all around the world literally, physically, come and die. People who are in need, their fate is literally in our hands. And I'm not saying this this morning to get you all down, but I want us to be real with what, where the world's at and what the gospel is really all about. The beautiful thing on the other end of that is that when we do come and die, when we truly surrender, we step into that role of being proper image bearers of God, representing his character to people around us. And it's one of the best ways that we can show people what it looks like to follow Jesus and invite them to follow Jesus is by being willing to come and die and make sacrifices for our God who loves us. And say, I mean, think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Man, dude died on a cross in a brutal way. He just asked us to take care of orphans and widows in their distress. This idea of being polluted by the world in opposition to caring for orphans and widows in their distress, to me, shows the, really clearly shows the tension that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 or Romans 8 when he talks about how the flesh and the spirit are battling with each other. If you've read these texts, what's, what's going on is Paul's talking about how as Christians, we have God's spirit living in us and God's spirit compels us. He says, look out for people who are in need. God says, my heart breaks for the needy. Let your heart break too. The spirit says, give and be merciful and have compassion and provide for those who are in need. But the flesh, what does the flesh answer back and say? Because we still struggle with our sinful flesh. The flesh says, no, what about me? That's uncomfortable. It's messy. It hurts. It's not what I want to do. The fruit is good and pleasing. I want the fruit. And it's a hard tension. And Jesus says, come and die. This Sunday, uh, as we've been saying, is, is Barefoot Sunday. Maybe at this point you've, uh, you've guessed at what that means. Or uh, maybe you have friends in first service and they were texting you warnings telling you what that means or something like that. Um, but here's what we're going to do for the rest of the service. In a little bit, we're going to sing. But before that, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and then I'm going to do it. At the, right before we sing, I'm going to challenge you guys to do something. But I'm going to tell you what that challenge is in advance, and then in that middle time, I'm going to make a little bit of an appeal to you guys as to why I'm asking you to do that. In about five minutes, I'm going to ask you guys to come to the front while we're singing and take off your shoes and leave them here. And forever, like you're not going to get them back kind of thing. And, and I know I'm asking a lot, and I, I want to ask you to just give me a few minutes to explain why I'm asking that, and let me challenge you a little bit. Uh, around the world today, over 300 million children don't have shoes. And that's just children. Adults don't have shoes as well. And shoes are actually pretty significant. You know, I didn't think about them as being that big of a deal, but I mean, we're like always wearing them, right? They're a pretty big part of our lives in, in poorer situations where people don't have shoes, uh, there are a lot of limitations that come along with that. There are health risks, but there are also, uh, it also prevents some people from being able to go to school, get educations, which costs them jobs, which perpetuates poverty. Some people can't get jobs because of lack of footwear, proper footwear. It's actually a huge component to poverty in the world is the fact that people don't have shoes or don't have proper 
footwear. What we're going to do is we're going to take the shoes that you guys give this morning, and we're going to give them to an organization called Souls for Souls. And what Souls for Souls do is they work all around the world. They take uh, shoe donations, and they give shoes to people who are in need. And so maybe a lot of times if there's a disaster or some relief situation, they provide shoes for people who don't have shoes or who need shoes. Um, but another thing that they do, and it's actually pretty cool, and it kind of hits home with, for me, is they, they take shoes uh, that have been donated, and they help people in developing nations um, start up a business where they're selling shoes. Um, and it hits home for me because last year when I was in Rwanda, I saw some of these businesses and I actually bought uh, some shoes off of a guy uh, in Kigali who was selling shoes and uh, used shoes. And uh, so it's pretty cool. It gives people the opportunity to feed their families whom they would otherwise struggle to feed. So it's pretty neat, really cool organization. And I'll let you know too, they don't only work in third world countries, uh, they provide relief in Canada and the United States as well too. So it's, it's also local, um, which I think is important to remember that needs don't only exist outside of Canada. Um, I know I'm asking a lot this morning, and I want to, like I said, just give you, tell you two quick things, and then make a little bit of an appeal, and then we'll uh, kind of move forward. Uh, first of all, I want to let you guys know, maybe some of you guys are thinking about our parking lot, because I know it is like a gravel pit. Um, and so I want to let you know this morning that we have some awesome volunteers who have volunteered to be valet unparkers. I don't know, the opposite end of that. Um, you don't have to tip them. Um, they're going to be at the front door, and you can give them your keys, and they can hit the honk button until they find your vehicle, and they'll bring your vehicle to you. Uh, they have name tags that say Valet Parker, so if they don't have that name tag, I would recommend not giving anyone your keys. <laughs> I'm just thinking there's like some carjacker in the crowd who's like, man, that's a, I'm going to go be a Valet Parker. Also, too, I want to let you know um, something I've heard a lot, which, you know those urban myths that happen and they're not actually true? Uh, is that it's against driving laws to drive barefoot. It's actually not true, which is really great because I'm happy to not have to ask you to do something illegal this morning. But, um, and if you don't believe me, I've looked into it. If you don't believe me, we have a, an officer who's one of our valet parkers. You can go fact check with him and he'll tell you, which I already have. You can, he'll tell you that it is totally legal. I know I'm asking a lot this morning by saying, hey, please come leave your shoes and leave barefoot. I know it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it's messy. Maybe you're supposed to go somewhere afterwards and now you have to go home or, I don't know, maybe you're going to someone's house. I, I don't know. I know I'm asking a lot. And I want to say a couple things. First of all, I know that there are probably some people this morning that literally cannot give their shoes. Maybe you've got like those crazy custom-made shoes that won't fit anyone else anyways. Um, I actually had to go to Winners and buy two pairs of shoes for this Sunday because all of my shoes are uh, pretty much would qualify for Barefoot Sunday because I wear them until my feet are on the ground and they're pretty much shredded and destroyed. And so maybe there's something going on like that. But what I want to say is that I think for most of us, we technically probably actually can leave our shoes and survive for the rest of the day. And I want to give you guys a little bit of a push. And I want you to know that what I say in the next few minutes, none of it is meant to be coercion or guilting you or shaming you or anything like that. But a firm yet gentle, loving push towards letting Jesus work in your heart this morning. Um, and sorry, the Doug virus is going around. Um, <laughs> man, I don't know what it is. In rehearsal, I, like, none of this was getting me, and then this morning I lost it in first service, so I'm going to be a mess by the end of this. In my life, it is, I have faced challenges where I realize Jesus is calling me to come and die, and it is hard. It is so hard and so painful. 
And for all of us, those are different areas that are hard to surrender. And I've been fortunate to have some people come alongside me and firmly yet gently and lovingly say, Ryan, Jesus is calling you to make some real sacrifices and that's going to hurt. And that's hard. Maybe you're here this morning and you wore your really expensive pair of shoes. And you know, you're like, man, I showed up today with my $5,000 kicks on. And I'm sorry that this is the Sunday you decide to wear those. And I'm asking for your shoes. But what I would push back on that and say is, if, you're, if our feet are worth valuable shoes, so are the feet of those who are in need around the world. We're not worth more than other people just because they don't have access to what we have access to. In fact, I would argue that some of them maybe need our expensive or our nice shoes or our shoes that we're attached to more than we do. I was chatting with Talisi this week, and um, she, was kind of, she knew what I was talking about, and she's kind of reflecting and saying she's, she said that sometimes she looks back on things or areas of her life that she sacrificed, and it's hard for her, and she kind of laments them and misses them. And she says it's difficult, but she said that the thing that is so cool about it is it always reminds her that that thing or that area of her life is just not as important as Jesus is. And those actual painful reminders are actually some of the best reminders to remind her who Jesus is in her life. Jesus calls us to come and die. Like I said, some of you absolutely can't donate your shoes, and I don't want you to think any of us are going to be looking around and see people wearing shoes afterwards and be judging you and be like, oh man, you're such a bad Christian. If you're thinking about doing that, just don't. Jesus calls us to come and die, and that calls us into sacrifice. I'll show you a picture of, uh, this is Mother Teresa's feet. Now, Mother Teresa, I mean, I almost feel like cheap talking about her when we're talking about giving, because like, I mean, yeah, she's amazing, and we'll just all never be there. Her feet look like that, probably for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that when people would uh, donate shoes to their mission, what she would do is she would let everyone else take shoes first, and if there were some left over at the end, she would take them, which means she would always get the worst, most beaten up pair, and oftentimes a pair that was sizes too small for her, and they destroyed her feet. And this is a picture of someone who said to Jesus, yes, I will come and die and make sacrifices where it hurts, and for her, where it physically hurts. The band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song about surrender, and as we sing, um, I'd, uh, in, as we sing the song at any point throughout, you guys can come and take off your shoes and uh, throw them there if you're deciding to leave them today. I want to say that uh, first service was really cool. I, I just wept as I watched people come and, and part with something that's obviously valuable to them. And some really cool things happened. And I want to tell you a couple of them really quickly. One was that some people went home and brought bags of shoes from home because a lot of us have that closet full of shoes we'll never wear. And, and you can donate. We're, we're not going to send these out like this afternoon or anything. You can bring more shoes all week if you want, if you want to go get some from home or whatever. But I would really challenge you I think it's easy to th be like, oh, yeah, I got those shoes I never wear at home. I'll go get those instead. I really challenge you to part with something that hurts this morning because it's really not about the shoes. This morning is really more about an invitation to come and die and make sacrifices 
for a God who made way bigger sacrifices for you than what you'll ever compete with. And if it's difficult to part with your shoes, that's probably like a really good reason to do it. It might be a really cool step, no pun intended, to, um, to, make, to, to acknowledge that Jesus truly is the Lord of your life. Uh, some people, they brought their kids in after first service and they, their ki- after they picked them up from FBC Kids and their kids donated their shoes too. And uh, it's so cool to see families doing that together. We donated average shoes this morning. Um, and so I'd encourage you, if you have kids, even bring them in here and do this. It's actually, uh, I'll tell you a couple things, a couple quick stories, but it was awesome because this morning, Darren and Lynn are doing music and uh, so they knew what was up in advance. So they got on the inside track and their uh, daughter's, um, ran up to me right when I walked into church this morning, and they said, uh, Ryan, they're like, we brought like 10 pairs of shoes from home. And they were so excited to give. Now, what a cool thing to do with your family. Get your kids and, and bring them in here if you want to do that. Um, there was a lady that came up to me this morning. Sorry, there's so many stories from this morning. There's a lady that came up to me during first service and I was like already a mess, kind of watching everyone give their shoes, and she was just like, you know, I, I had back surgery, so I've got special shoes for that, because they're whatever science and stuff like that, and she said, uh, they're really expensive, and I just bought them this week. And she's like, so my first thought was, I'll go home and get different shoes, and donate the ones that weren't the special expensive ones I just bought. But she came up crying, and she said, no, that's not what making sacrifices for Jesus is about. It's not about going home and getting your cheap sacrifice. This other guy, he, he went home and got better shoes than the ones he was wearing because he's like, I was reading Malachi where God speaks against the cheap and lousy sacrifices. And man, it's awesome. I hope that one day when church historians look back and they say, yeah, the 21st, North, 21st century North American church struggled to live lives the way that Jesus called them to in the midst of a poor and struggling world, that they can look back at FBC and be like, but FBC, they got it. God worked in their hearts and they chose to come and die and think out in ways that showed that they really understood what the gospel was all about. That's the church that I dream to be a part of. Again, it's not about the shoes. View this morning as an invitation to come and die at the feet of a God who loves you so much. So we're gonna sing, and anytime through the song, feel free to bring your shoes up, and then these guys will, uh, these guys will send you off.